And so as you know, I've been in a series recently, a series that I'm calling Show Us the Father. And I'm growing in deep passion for this series because I am living what I believe right now about the Father. And I believe showing us the Father, not only in an earthly sense, but certainly our Heavenly Father, is what this generation is missing. Many of them have never known God, so they don't know the Heavenly Father. Many of them don't know an earthly father. And so we have a tremendous father fracture that's going on, and it's hurting our world. It's hurting our people. And so as I was meditating yesterday morning, he began to put some things in my heart. My mama and my daddy separated when I was just a very young boy. The earliest memory I have is when I was six. The year was 1967. And they would subsequently divorce. And I can't tell you how many times that I cried myself to sleep. I can't tell you how many hours I spent staring through the window pane. In my heart of hearts, I was just saying, I hope my daddy comes home. I hope my daddy comes back. And I found probably at times me reaching out in a sense for my siblings. And it was, I believe, their heart as well. All of our hearts. There were five of us kids. And I think we all felt the same way. Innately, we said, show us the Father. We want to see the Father. And I think innately, I felt like if I could just see my daddy, if I could just get a glimpse of my daddy, if my daddy would come home, that all these insecurities and this emotional pain that children go through would somehow subside, somehow it would just go away if I could just get a glimpse of my daddy. And friends, I lived that life as a child, and that is a daily reality for millions and millions, multiplied millions of children, especially in the United States of America. Do you know what the purpose of roots are for a plant or for a tree? <laughs> They're pretty obvious. Roots absorb the water, they absorb the nutrients and the minerals. And there's a relationship between the roots and everything above it. And so when children are fathered, there's supposed to be a relationship between the roots and everything above it. And I think that's what's so devastating is when you take away the root system, then you're left to somehow dig your own roots, if you will. And roots, what they do is they anchor the tree, they anchor the plant so that that plant is able to stand, that tree is able to stand. And the people who have been raised in homes without God and without an earthly daddy, I know they have suffered greatly and we see the effects of that. They try to function in life and what they're trying to function by is maybe a partial root system or literally no root system, whatever. And I believe that the root system to every single crisis that we face, particularly in the United States of America, stems from an unhealthy old covenant perception of God and fatherless homes. So there's a father fracture in both senses. Boys and girls get their identity from their fathers. 
There are no equal substitutes. A little girl that is treasured and adored and cherished and loved and repeatedly told that she is loved by her daddy will generally not seek affirmation in the arms of a boy. That's typically how it will go. A boy that is loved and nurtured and made to feel special and is mentored by his father typically will not seek the approval of a gang or will not seek the approval in his vocation as he grows. And how many of you know that's what men do? We want to find identity. We want to find approval in the eyes of other people, men, women. And so if it's not given to us at a young child, we'll do everything we can to find it. And so many men get trapped in chasing a career. I was there at one time earlier in my life. I felt like I thrived in that area and that was my identity. You see, a daddy's role is to love and to affirm and to teach his children many things, but he's certainly there to teach his children the love of God and the graces of God. And in doing so, you know what he does? He digs a well in their soul a well that God lives in, a well that magnifies the graces of God and magnifies the love and mercies of God. Today, I want to minister through a message I'm calling the virtue of the inner well. How many of you know that brushing your teeth it will be of no comfort to you if you're in need of a root canal? Come on, come on. I've never had a root canal, but I've been around people that needed one and it's a miserable thing. But brushing your teeth will not bring comfort to you if you're in need of a root canal. An exercise like that, in fact, would probably just give you angry limbs, wouldn't it? It would probably make you more irritated. Yet most people, so many people, exasperate themselves by treating that which is on the surface rather than treating the root cause. Come on. They treat the surface, but they don't treat the root. Jesus himself said that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. In other words, Jesus was saying that if the fruit is bad, it's because there is a problem typically with the root system. You cannot get bad fruit from a good root, okay? So let's ask the question. I mean, there's an obvious question when you hear a statement like that. I had to ask it myself yesterday as I was thinking it through. If Jesus is the believer's root system, and he is, didn't he say he's the vine, we are the branches? That means he's the root system. Jesus called himself the root of David in Revelation chapter 22. Jesus is our root system. So if Jesus is the believer's root system, and he is, then is there a problem with Jesus when believers act sinfully, think inappropriately, and sometimes we speak irresponsibly. So let's ask the question, is there a problem with the root system then if Jesus is our root system and all of this nonsense activity is going on in our life? Of course not. The problem is never with Jesus, is it? He never has a problem. He never has an issue. The problem is never with Jesus. You see, we actually have two gardens that are growing roots inside of us. We have the one garden known as our spirit man, and we have the other garden known as our soul. It's our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions. And Jesus lives in the garden referred to as our spirit. 
He loved to walk into the garden. He would come down daily and walk with Adam in the cool of the garden, the scripture says. He loves the garden. This garden where Jesus lives. Think about it. This is your spirit, man. This garden where he lives is organic and teeming with life and nutrition. It never needs to be fertilized. The scriptures say by one sacrifice, he has made our garden perfect forever. I want you to take that home with you this morning. By one sacrifice, he has put a perfect garden, a perfect nature on the inside of us. The garden of our soul, though, come on. <laughs> this is where the issues begin. The garden of our soul, like I said, consists of our mind. It's our will. It's our emotion. Our soul's root system contains memory. It has memory in it, and it has old programming and lots of it. It's where the flesh operates from. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you're a farmer and you own 1,000 acres and you plant 500 acres of corn in the southern section of your land. And in the northern section of your land, you plant 500 acres of soybeans. Well, if you know anything about farming, you'll know that farmers have to rotate their crops. Not necessarily every year, but definitely minimum every three years. They have to rotate their crops. Would you like to know why a farmer has to rotate his crops? Listen to me carefully. There's a couple of reasons, but the primary reason that a farmer rotates his crops is to deprive parasites of their habitual environment. In other words, they begin to set up colonies. They begin to set up strongholds. They begin to set up a home. And so by rotating his crops, he keeps the parasites from getting too set in, if you will. And by doing so, he prevents pests and crop disease. And so friends, as we renew our minds with the mind of Christ. We hear that so often. I have the mind of Christ. We need to renew our minds. Our minds need to be transformed. These are all biblical expressions and they're actual scriptures that come out of the Bible and so often quoted, but yet so many people go, what does it mean to renew our mind? So as we renew our minds with the mind of Christ, what we are doing is we are rotating that which is in the garden of our spirit over into the garden of our soul, thereby preventing the habitat for the nagging pests of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. How many of you know, as has been said, if you treat something early and treat something quickly and treat something on a regular basis, you stifle its ability to affect you. And so what we do is we rotate that which is in the perfect garden into this other garden, this garden of our mind. And by renewing our minds with the graces and truths, that's how we do it. We renew our minds with graces and truths of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And by doing so, we eliminate potential crop failure of the mind in the garden of our souls. I want to be honest with you. Believers are affected sometimes as much as unbelievers. The enemy does not try to not affect your mind just because you belong to God. In fact, if anything, he may come after you even more. And so we have to deal with parasites. 
which are things like guilt and shame. These are just parasites. Condemnation, a major parasite. And so by rotating that which is in the perfect realm, the promises of God, we were singing about them. The goodness of God, the faithfulness of God as we begin to meditate. That's why it's so important to meditate. To meditate is the word ruminate. It means to chew the cud. It means to continually think about something and to mow it over in your mind just to keep thinking about the goodness of God, remembering the times when he pulled you out of the muck and the mire, remembering the times when he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And so our soul is a place, listen, I cannot be talking to someone that doesn't wrestle with the same things. I wrestle with these things too. So, like a well in the ground, our soulish memories and programmings, they're either dug, drilled, or driven deep into the garden of man's soul. There are hurtful memories on the inside of people and religious programming that is so deep in the well of our souls that you know what they do? They continually leach contamination into the water supply that nurtures our mind and our will and our emotion. It starts to leach and try to contaminate certain areas of your mind. The contamination shows up, just like I said, in things like blame. It shows up in things like hopelessness and helplessness. And yes, guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. Those four parasite pillars, if you will. Jesus met a woman that was suffering from these contaminations at Jacob's well in Samaria. It was there that physically tired Jesus met an emotionally tired Samaritan woman. A woman whose root system sank deep into the well of religion. That's all she knew, friends. She didn't know what we know. She didn't have the spirit like we have the spirit. She didn't have the scriptures like we have the scriptures. And so she was loaded with religion. She was a woman who had never rotated her religious crops because they just didn't do that back in those days. They heard something, they just fastened their heart on it, and they didn't like change. That's why the Pharisees, when Jesus would come and stand before them, and he couldn't do anything with them because they were unwilling to allow their little religious crops to get messed with. No, we like planting corn in the southern section every year. We don't believe we need to change things around. You see how that works? And Jesus would come along and he would tell her, hey, miss, <laughs> you don't need Jacob's well. What she needed was the well that was full of the virtues of God, full of this beautiful organic garden. Friends, let me tell you something. Religion will whisper in your ears and it will whisper things like this. <laughs> you don't need to change. You're doing just fine the way the crops have been planted in your mind. Really? Because I'm telling you, the crops in my mind are getting rotated all the time because I'm allowing that which is in the Spirit, the truths of the Spirit, to overtake this belief system, this old programming in my mind, these old memories that affect me at times. That's why people have crop failure, to be honest with you, is they just refuse to change. They refuse to let go of erroneous doctrine. I'm talking about, when I say that, the belief system, the system that you have grown up believing. You know what? I'm always willing to change. I'm always willing and open to say, Daddy, let's go on a journey. 
let's change the way I think. I can't possibly have a total revelation. So there's some things I don't understand. And there's some things that I understand probably incorrectly. So daddy, let's go on this journey. Let's go walk this road together. Religion will whisper into your ears, you're helpless to change. You don't have anyone else to help you plow. And that's what religion does. It comes along and they might even say, you know what, change is okay, but you need someone else to help you. And I understand partnering with somebody. I understand putting a word in somebody's heart. It's like sometimes you have to hold the plowshare for them, but religion will keep you stuck. It will keep you going, I don't have anybody else. It will make up a lot of excuses to help me in my time of need. Isn't that what Martha did when she came in from the kitchen? And she saw Mary seating at the feet of Jesus. And she said, Jesus, tell her, tell my sister to help me in the kitchen. In other words, what she was saying is, I need someone to help me in the kitchen. Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Oh, but I love this. He says, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Isn't that powerful? See, we put so much on our dashboard. We put so much on our resume. We put so much on our bucket list. And Jesus just told Martha, he said, there is few things needed. And then he said, you know what? Let me change my thought on that. Or indeed only one. Mary had chosen what was best and it will not be taken away from her. Can you see yourself at the feet of Jesus? I love envisioning that. If Jesus walked in, I don't even know. I would be speechless. I would probably just put my arms around him and just absolutely weep for a long time. And then when I was done, I would probably just say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you a million times. Thank you for what you've done in my life. I know I would do that. When I proposed to Valerie, for 30 minutes, she couldn't talk. All she could do was cry. I wasn't expecting that, but that's what happened. So can you imagine if Jesus just walked in here in the manly form, and you had that revelation that was him? Every single one of us would just want to hold him. There would be no questions for him. Jesus said to Martha, there's only one thing necessary. And she's chosen that which is better. It's just to be with me. It's to be with me because if she's with me, she's with my daddy. She's with the father. I've shown her the father's heart. There was a popular song in the 1970s. I don't know why this song came to my mind yesterday. I've not even thought about it in 30 years. But there was a popular song in the 1970s from the Little River Band. And it wasn't intended to be a spiritual song, but it certainly has some spiritual parallels. A portion of the lyrics went like this. What's it like inside the bubble? Does your head ever give you trouble? It's no sin. Trade it in. Hang on. Help is on the way. I'll be there as fast as I can. Do you hear the parallel? What's it like inside the bubble? Does your head ever give you trouble? And the answer is yes, my head gives me trouble. I lose my little doggy brain, my wife says at times. That's in my head. 
Does your head ever give you trouble? Friends, if we could just operate without the brain for just a second and all the stuff that's trapped on the inside of it, this old programming, these old hurtful memories, then our head wouldn't give us any trouble, would it? Hang on, help us on the way. I'll be there as fast as I can. Hang on. A tiny voice did say somewhere deep inside the inner man. Friends, you and I do not have to wait for help to arrive, okay? The helper has been put on the inside. See, that's the problem, is we're always reaching for an external manifestation, an outward expression of some sort. Jesus is on his way. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God, they live on the inside of us. Help is not on the way under the new covenant. Help is here. Oh, they say, oh, someday. Oh, my goodness. One day, any day, I don't know. But we push so much stuff out into the future. And whatever our need is, he's already given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Whatever that need is, that need lives in the perfect garden on the inside of us where there are no weeds where there's luscious fruit and beautiful nature of all sorts living on the inside of us. So we don't have to wait for help to arrive. We have all the help we need, and it's not on the way. It is the way. That is Christ himself, the hope of glory, living on the inside of us. He abides on the inside of us. He speaks to us and helps us through the virtue of the inner well. When I feel the Holy Spirit, I feel him in the well right here, in the belly of my body. This is where I sense him most, right here in this inner well. Am I talking to somebody today who is emotionally tired, worn out, burned out on religion? I've got a word for you. Be like Mary and get away at Jesus' feet and have a long, cold drink, come on, of living water. Get away with him. His living water is free of charge and it doesn't come with conditions. Get that in your heart this morning. It's free of charge and it doesn't come with conditions. Friends, Jesus doesn't have any conditions. He says, drink all the water you want. I've already put the well on the inside of you. It's there. It's bubbling up and out, refreshing you. Allow him to rotate the organic life from our spirit man to our soul man. Walk with him. Work with him. Watch how he does it. And he'll show you how to take a real rest. He'll show you how to lay aside your mule and your plowshare. And then like Mary, sit at his feet and take in the unforced rhythms of grace. Isn't that beautiful? The unforced rhythms of grace that bubble up and out of the virtue, the qualities, the God that's on the inside of us in this inner well. It doesn't get any better than that. The Samaritans were hybrids, if you will. They thought they were half Gentile and half Jew. Yet they despised the Jews. They hated the Jews and the Jews hated them. 
But Jesus came along and changed the Samaritan woman's racist viewpoint. Friends, in God's eyes, there's one race, and that's the human race. In the Father's heart, there is one covenant, and that covenant is the covenant of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Daddy's eyes, there's one salvation, and that salvation comes by grace through faith. In Papa's eyes, there is one wellspring of living water and he put it on the inside of us Christ himself the hope of glory the Holy Spirit we no longer have to listen to the parasite that spews the rhetoric for us to hang on help is on the way I'll be there as fast as I can too late (laughs) too late he's already here it was at the well that Jesus convinced the Samaritan woman to leave the traditions of her father Jacob and come to his father, the source of living water. The Samaritan woman exchanged the natural that day for the supernatural, the kitchen for the family room, the water pot for true worship, condemnation for Christ, sorrow for supply, and she exchanged ashes for beauty, the beauty of Christ. She could have never known that was going to happen. She was making a mundane trip, a trip she makes every day to the well to get water at a time when other women didn't come. Why? Because she was an outcast. Through the gift of God, the Samaritan woman would ultimately abandon her dependency upon Jacob's well and place her trust in Jesus, the wellspring of life, the source of living water. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, we find these words. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go? He had to go because his father said so. There were other routes. Believe me, you had Judah, Samaria, and Galilee. He's going from the region of Judah up to Galilee. He has to go through Samaria, but he could have walked around to the east just like the Pharisees did. Racist bunch, really, to be honest with you. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus Tired as he was from the journey. Friends, I want you to underscore that in your heart. Jesus got tired. Why did Jesus get tired? Because he was a man. He was a man. He was like you and me. If you pinched him too hard, it hurt. There were times I'm sure he got slivers working in the carpenter shop. Jesus was a man. Now Jesus is tired. Tired as he was from the journey. You know what he did? He sat down at the well. It was about noon. I love this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, and he said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Did you hear what Jesus began with? 
He said, if you knew the gift of God, he's saying, if you know the nature of God, if you know the nature of my father, he is a giver. And if you would have asked him, if you would ask me, he would have given you living water. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, like I said, we know our excuses, don't we? Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Religious. That's all she knows. Don't throw her under the camel, okay? That's all she knows. She said, she asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? You got the Messiah sitting at the well with you. And you ask him, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, that's because she doesn't have the revelation yet, or she couldn't have asked a question like that. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Sometimes I think we got to let go of some things just because they have sentimental value, if you will. I'm not talking about all your little knickknacks. I'll let you figure that out with daddy. But there are things sometimes that we just have to let go of in life because we've always had it, or we've always done it. We don't want to rotate our crops too much. So she's asking, a, I think, a legitimate question. Jesus answered, and he said, everyone who drinks this water, not that he looked down the well, he said, everyone that drinks this water, he said, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become, look at those words, in them, in them. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to put the well on the inside of you. Do you see that? Well, you don't have to be thirsty anymore. That's what he was telling the Samaritan woman. He was saying, look, I'm going to put the well on the inside of you. I'm talking about the well that cannot be contaminated, friends. I'm talking about a well that never experiences crop failure, a well where no pest or pestilence reside, a well that satisfies with one drink, a well that has no habitat and no breeding ground, if you will, for guilt and shame, fear and condemnation. These are the tools that the enemy loves to use. If the enemy would walk into this room with a toolbox only with four tools in them, I'm telling you, it would be guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. That's why I preach so much against those things. Because the well that he puts on the inside of it, this, this organic, beautiful garden that we can draw from, we can draw its nourishment and its nature into our mind. It transforms is what it does. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So now she's got a partial revelation. He's talking about something. He's staying at it. She says, now, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. <laughs> Look what he told her. He said, well, go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. How would Jesus know that? Because the father shared it with him. He said, I don't do anything. I don't say anything that I don't hear or say my father do first. So the father would have told him that, whether it was in that moment or whether it was 
Earlier that day, father said, you're going to meet a woman at a well. She's had five husbands. The man she's living with right now is not her husband. So that was on Jesus' heart. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? When Jesus told the woman at the well to call her husband, she responded with, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. Friends, Jesus highlighted her failure with the five husbands, not because he wanted to condemn her, but so that he could show her her need for the virtue of the inner well. You see, a diamond is best showcased against a black veil. But once we come to Christ, the veil is removed. Father is not going to showcase us continually against darkness. Yes, we're in this world. We live in a dark world. We're like diamonds. We're like suns. We're like stars shining in a dark world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, we find these words. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Friends, let that seep in your heart this morning. When your hopeometer begins to rise, what you find is the boldness begins to rise too. And because we have such a hope, it says we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull for to this day, look what he says, for until this day. Now the Apostle Paul is the one who's writing this. This is post-cross. Jesus has already been crucified, buried. He's been resurrected from the dead. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And so we're on the right side of the cross. But the Apostle Paul said, even to this day, in other words, he said, it's still present. So if it was present then, it's present now, friends. He said, to this day, the same veil remains. Look what he says. When the old covenant is read. Now, not when you just read through it, but it's when you take it and you apply it to your life. He said, that veil still remains. Because what you've done under the old covenant is you put daddy at a distance. What you've done under the old covenant is you've said, my performance, my obedience is what matters most. No, neither one of those things are true. Obedience is important. I get it. Being honorable is important. Yes, absolutely. No argument. But we're not under the old covenant. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's saying, to this day, he said the same veil remains. Now, we're not talking about a bridal veil that you can see through and it looks beautiful on you. We're talking about a curtain that's very thick. It's the veil that was torn when Jesus was crucified. You can't see through it. You can't even move it. It's so stiff and so heavy. And he said, that's the way you become. You become stiff and you become heavy hearted when the veil is in place. You can't live life freely, if you will. You can't live life where you rest in him. So he says that same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Please, please, please get yourself out from the old covenant. How do you do that? You reach down into the organic spirit where there is no old covenant, only new covenant, only new nature, and you bring daddy's promises, the new covenant promises out, and you allow them to saturate your mind, saturate your heart. It is important to be honest with you what we listen to and what we watch. 
You want to know why? Because if you keep mixing it in, look, imagine you take a pitcher full of milk and you pour in a shot glass full of Kool-Aid. Well, if you do that enough times, you know what you end up with? Kool-Aid. Because when you put the Kool-Aid in, milk comes out. Put Kool-Aid in, whatever's in there comes out. Eventually, that's what happens. I have proven that. I've done that at home before. And I know even with a slow drip, just one drip at a time from the faucet, eventually what's in that gallon jug will be forced out because it's called displacement. One water coming in displaces another water going out, friends. And so I think it's important what we set before our eyes. I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm not trying to put you under any condemnation. I just think it's important. And he says, again, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away? Even to this day, when Moses is read, in other words, what's he saying? Why is he, is he picking on Moses? No, Moses was a godly man. If you would have ever walked with Moses, if he could come back today, you'd go, wow, that is the most spiritual guy I've ever met. He's a powerful man, but he was under the old covenant. And he says, even to this day, when Moses is read, what does he mean by when Moses is read? Well, Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And in Exodus, you pick up the law around somewhere around chapter 20, I believe it is, where the Ten Commandments show up. And he said, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. Friends, this is not, again, a wedding veil that's beautiful. And you see your beautiful bride through. No, it's a veil that you cannot see through. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, when you fixate on the Lord, when you Look at the new covenant promises of the word and of the Lord. He says, then the veil gets lifted. The veil is taken away. And I'm beginning really to see that more and more as I'm beginning to just really enjoy my Christian walk. I'm not spending three hours in prayer like I used to because I just wore myself out. I want to listen to him rather than him listen to me. Besides, all I did was just beg anyway, to be honest with you. I just asked for a bunch of stuff. I was sincere, to be honest with you. Stuff, I wasn't asking for a million dollars. I was asking for the Lord to meet my needs. I was asking on behalf of other people, praying for other people. But I found out, you know what? It's best, rather than banging pots in the kitchen with all this prayer and stuff like that, don't stop praying, but just sit at his feet. Sit at his feet and worship him and love him and listen to his voice. Because when the voice of the Lord comes into our heart and this revelation comes into our heart like the lady at the well, the veil is taken away. That which we could not see beyond or see through. He said all of that is taken away. Too many of our children have walked away from the church and from living the Christian life because they were never introduced to the truth that I just read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. They never got introduced to that. Our children grew tired of living under an old covenant, the covenant that cannot produce living water. You cannot get living water out of the old covenant. That's why Moses had to strike rock. He had to get it somewhere else. You can't get living water out of the old covenant. So our children have grown tired of coming to the well of condemnation, sitting under sermons that condemn them, sitting under sermons that tell them they need to do more, they need to be more, they need to get more involved. No, how about them just getting at Jesus' feet and listening at His feet and charting their own course with Christ? They grew thirsty in their search for the spring of water welling up to eternal life. They searched with all of their hearts for the virtue of the inner well, but were only told 
about broken cisterns in the old covenant. The covenant that veils the heart of man. Through the revelation of the new covenant of grace, you know what he does? He fills our wells with a fresh and incorruptible water supply. When's the last time you used that word? See, we don't use that word very often, do we? Because we know we live in a world where everything decays. Everything corrupts, in a sense. But he said here, he's going to fill our wells with a fresh and incorruptible water supply. A water supply that originates in our spirit and then cascades like a gushing waterfall over our mind and our will and our emotions, healing hurtful memories. That's what it does. Flushing out toxic emotions and thoughts, shattering the window pane of insecurity and emotional pain that many people, children and adults alike are staring through on a daily basis and stripping away this old programming that kept both our natural fathers and Father God at a distance. He's up close, friends. He's personal. He's right here. He's on the inside of us. The well of Jesus' love for us constantly reminds us that we are treasured, we are loved, we are adored, we are beautiful, we are special in His eyes, but mainly we are His. We are His, amen? Now I'm in chapter 4 of the book of John, and three chapters later the apostle John would use the same living water motif to show us once again that Jesus had put the well on the inside of us. That well is his sweet Holy Spirit, the one who is the deposit, the scriptures say, guaranteeing our inheritance. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Now to understand this, Jesus is at the feast in Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles. And after he had run many days, the scriptures say, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. That means he stood and proclaimed. He stood and shouted. We're not talking tears here. Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Look at what it says. He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus said, He that believeth on me. That is so simple, isn't it? There's got to be a condition somewhere. No, there's not. He that believeth on me. He said, you're going to find a gushing well, an unlimited supply of water, living water, gushing out of my belly and into yours. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then he tells you what that means. He said, but this spake he about the Spirit. This is pre-cross. He's not been crucified. He's talking about the Spirit that is going to come after he goes. He says, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive. Have we received him? Yes. For the Holy Ghost had not yet been given. Does it say that? Because Jesus had not been glorified. He had not been crucified and then glorified. What was Jesus telling us in those scriptures? He was telling us plainly that if we come to him and we will drink of his living water, 
then he will put all of the virtue of the inner well on the inside of us. Friends, you can't pick up anything different than reading that from those scriptures. That well, like I said, is called the Holy Spirit. And at this particular time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was saying, hang on, help is on the way. And see, that's what they call him. They call him the helper. So he was just saying, just stick in there. It's okay because once I'm crucified, he won't just come and land on you and then depart. He will come and he will bring this river of living waters and he'll place it on the inside of you and he will abide forever there. And he will set up a perfect garden, an organic garden, organic life teeming with beauty on the inside of you. Has he done that? Absolutely, he's done that. Fatherless and godless homes produce children that in adulthood are more likely to be abusive. I don't think any of us will disagree with that. Much more likely to exhibit behavioral problems. Much more likely to live a life of crime and do drugs and alcohol. Much more likely, if you come from a fatherless home, to drop out of high school much more likely to become obese, much more likely to end up in poverty, much more likely to go to prison. And did you know that if a young lady is in a fatherless home, she is seven times more likely to have a teenage pregnancy? Friends, I didn't make this stuff up. This is the importance of fathers in the home. So passionate about that. And when you see a father that's been in the home and he's been there for his children, not just in the home, but been a part of their life. Jim and Mary, I've seen your children through your pictures, and Jean, your girls, and I can tell just by looking and what I hear that there was deposits that were put in them all throughout life, and you can see the manifestation of that spirit, that garden, that organic garden living on the inside of them, and I know I can say that about many people here, but I'm just saying, when you nurture your children in the things of God, then you are less likely to have your children experience these things. The list is much greater than this, believe me. But these are the realities of fatherless and godless homes. Without fathers, you know what? We are left to dig our own well. We are left to drill our own well. We are left to drive our own well. Without God, our cisterns are broken and cannot hold water. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we find these words. Has a nation ever changed its gods? <laughs> yeah, they did it all the time. Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Isn't that crazy? A glorious God for a worthless idol. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. He said, my people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me. And look what he says, the spring of living water. <laughs> they gave up living water. Can you imagine a man walking in the desert? He's got a few miles to go yet, maybe 10, maybe 20. He's got a big old canteen full of water. And someone comes along and says, you know, I've got a nice Rolex watch. I'll trade you this watch for that water. You'd have to be out of your mind. Why would you trade away a glorious God for worthless idols? Because they didn't have an organic garden on the inside of them. They didn't know any better. 
They did, but they didn't. They didn't have the helper living on the inside of them. We have the helper living on the inside of us. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Under the old covenant, Israel repeatedly forsook God and worshiped worthless idols. Friends, I don't care how big the gold nugget is or how much it's worth. I am not trading my spring of living water for anything on earth. In fact, I can't. Scriptures say that he's given us an undying love for him, a love that never perishes. As a swarm of locusts strip a field of everything green and leave famine in their aftermath, so it is with the unhealthy images of our earthly daddies and our heavenly father. I'm talking about the images that ravish our innocence and disturb our peace. Images that leave us with barren souls and broken cisterns. Images that keep us staring through the window pane while wondering if our daddy will ever come back. Images that keep our Heavenly Father at such a distance. Images that devastate our emotions and thoughts and every green thing. Images that have been dug, drilled, and driven into a deep-seated root system that affects the way we think, the way we act, and even the way we speak. Images that at best keep telling us to Hang on. <laughs> Help is on the way. I remember years ago when I served at the Life Center, we gave out food, and we gave out a lot of food. We gave out clothing. We gave out over-the-counter medications. And there was these three ladies who came kind of late that day. And by the time they came, the bread was gone. All we had left was these big, long uh, Italian breads, you know, that are just in the paper sleeve. That's all we had left, and boy, they were out in the parking lot, and they were complaining. And they saw me and knew I was one of the pastors of the property. They said, come here, you know, and I thought, what's going on? Well, you know, look at this. What they gave us for bread? You know, they got bags and bags of groceries, and they're complaining about this bread. I said, well, that's probably all we had left. Well, how am I going to make sandwiches out of this? I said, well, you just take a knife. You know, I'm just trying to be all pragmatic, right? You take a knife and just slice it off like that, kind of cut it up yourself. I mean, loaves are not baked in individual slices. You got to cut it, okay? I didn't know what else to do. And those three were standing right there. I just grabbed them all around the head like that. And I pulled them up here. I mean, you could smell each other's breath. We were so close. And I just said, God in heaven, these ladies need bread. Now, Father, I don't know how you're going to do it. But in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the bread. And I am not kidding you. I let them go, and I saw something out of my peripheral vision. The man was walking up with three loaves of bread. <laughs> I just went, well, there's your bread. Isn't God good? I'm not saying I'm barking orders at God to make him do something he doesn't want to do. But when I grabbed them, I said, okay, this is it. And I knew those ladies knew I meant business. God, they need bread. And here he came walking up with the bread. In Proverbs chapter 23, in verse 7, from the Amplified Bible now, we find these words. I'm not in the Amplified very often. How many of you recognize this scripture when you see it? Looks familiar, doesn't it? For as he thinks in his heart, or for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
That's why I'm telling you, if you've got this old programming in your mind, in your heart, if you've got these old hurtful memories that are stuck somewhere, then you are going to have to reach down into the well. You're going to have to reach down into the living source, the organic source, and pull it up out of there. He says, because as a man thinks, so he is. In other words, he's saying, as the man thinks, he will live that out. Wherever the mind goes, the man will follow. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he in behavior, one who manipulates. He says to you, eat and drink. In other words, he'll invite you to lunch. And then when it comes time for you to order, and you order the T-bone steak, which is $37.50 on the menu, and his heart, he's going, oh, God, what did I just do? He's not really with you, but he's not going to let you know. Eat, drink. Yet his heart is not with you, but it is begrudging the cost. The greatest crisis we face in the United States of America is not the coronavirus. It's not the open border. It's not illegal immigration or drugs, nor is it the decisions made in Washington, D.C. These are simply the fruit of a poor root system. That's all. The greatest epidemic that we are challenged with today is rooted in fatherlessness. How do I know this? Because I talk to people. I look at people. I'm with people who grew up in homes with no father. If it hadn't been for God rescuing me from the dominion of darkness, my life would probably be a wreck right now. It'd be a broken cistern somewhere. It'd be a dried well somewhere, you know, chasing other things to try to find my identity. But my identity is in Christ. I found him. He found me. We found one another. And he said, Mark, son, I'm going to put the garden right on me inside of you. But see, in my early Christian walk, I felt like it was my job to take care of the garden. I had to pull the weeds. You know what that looks like? You better be obedient. You better write out your tithe check. That's pulling the weeds out of your garden. All the stuff you go through, it's charades, man. It really is. So the greatest epidemic we're facing is fatherlessness. One out of every four children in this country has no biological step or adoptive father in their home. Now that's a staggering number when you consider that there are about 75 million children under the age of 18 in the United States of America. Plain and simple, about 20 million of these children will go to bed tonight in the absence of their fathers. The absence of fathers from their home incontrovertibly damage the souls of our children. While they are sleeping, the ravaging locusts of condemnation continue to eat up everything green. In Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 through 11, we find these words. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for the people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? He's just saying, look, if you just want to go through a day without eating, it's not that hard. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Look what he says. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. What a powerful fast. He says, this is what I have in mind. And he's not saying, look, you set aside food for a day, you earn this. No, he's not saying anything like that, but he's saying this 
is my heart. Untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor and wander with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Friends, daddies have walked away over and over and over again. I'm not saying it's always the daddy's fault, but I'm just saying walking away from their own flesh and blood. He says, then your light, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. The healing of the land, the healing of the nation, the healing of the homes, the healing of the hearts. He said, your healing will quickly appear. He says, then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He will always be with you. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. He says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, we're going to find out what that is in a second. And then he says, with pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Look what he says. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Isn't that beautiful language? Isn't that awesome? Friends, these scriptures are not commands to us in order that we might be right with God. Neither are they exercises that we do to make ourselves more spiritual. That's not what this is about. The fasting that Isaiah wrote about that pleases God was defined as loosing the chains of injustice and untying the cords of the yoke, setting the oppressed free, and breaking every yoke. Friends, let me tell you something under a new covenant here. The yoke is the law. It's the old covenant, and it hangs like a millstone around the necks of those who live by it. The law is an unbearable weight that many have unintentionally hung around the necks of their children. It's a broken cistern that is void of living water. And he says, when you put that on somebody, when you tell them that's what you've got to do to be right with God, he says, you can't set them free like that. You put a yoke of oppression over their neck. I believe by the Spirit that Isaiah, he knew what authentic relationship looked like when he said, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, he said, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. That is the father's heart. That was Isaiah's heart. Isaiah knew that the eyes of the children would be watching and the ears of the children would be listening. Friends, if you want to put a love in the heart of your children for growing things, then let them grow up on a farm one time. There's very few kids that grow up, spend an entire lifetime on a farm that walk away from the farm. You know why? Because daddy's put a love for growing things in their heart. And they just can't see doing anything else. If you want to put a love in your children's heart for animals, then introduce them to animals. And if you want to put a love in your children's heart for the Father and for Christianity 
and for purity and for people of all races, then do away with the yoke of oppression. Remember, the yoke of oppression is a law-based relationship with God. It's the old covenant, a broken cistern, and it does not contain the virtues of the inner well. Isaiah wrote these words. He says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness, and your night will become like noonday. Isaiah was saying through those scriptures, he says, if we quit putting our bony finger in people's faces, and if we stop our hateful talk about the sinner, but rather look for ways to help them remove the yoke of oppression and the pangs of hunger, then people will see that our God is real, that our God is up close, that our God is organic, that our God is substantial, and they won't need their worthless idols. People have worthless idols even to this day. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that a light would rise in darkness that is so bright that it will make midnight look like it's noonday. Friends, that's the glory of the Lord on the inside of us. And I think that's really where it begins. We're not putting a yoke of oppression on people by telling them that they have to be under the law. They have to obey everything in the law to be pleasing to God. That's one thing. And that God loves you regardless. And that God puts a virtuous well on the inside of you that can never be contaminated. And by one sacrifice, he has made us perfect. He has made the garden, the habitat inside of us absolutely perfect. And so when we are not putting our finger in the face of someone and saying, Shame, 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 guilt, 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 condemn, condemn, condemn. He says, that has a way of working on people. That has a way of showing them daddy's tender heart. That daddy will always be there to rescue you. When you need the three loaves of bread, even though you didn't go about it quite the right way, father's faithful. The scriptures say when we're faithless, he remains faithful. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. I find myself praying that quite often. When I'm praying for somebody, I'll say, Father, thank you that you're strengthening their frame. He will strengthen your frame. That's your constitution, friends. That's your body. That's your soulish mind. So you're not walking like a man that has no hope. He's going to straighten. He's going to strengthen your constitution, the way you see things. He's going to put a hope on the inside of you. He's going to put light on the inside of you. You're going to feel this gushing well bubbling up and out, kind of like Valerie was talking about on the way to church this morning when the tongues began to come up and the interpretation began to flow. We don't have to be at an altar, friends. We don't have to be by ourselves. Father wants to speak to us all the time. He said, he will strengthen your frame. I love this. You will be like a well-watered garden. Friends, our garden will never need another drink of water. Daddy has fertilized it perfectly. He has sealed us until the day of redemption. And he said, like a spring whose waters never fail. You want to know why his waters never fail? Because his love never fails. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The prophet Isaiah said, do away with the yoke of oppression. Did you hear what he said? Do away with the yoke. 
And then Jesus would come along and he would say, take my yoke. Well, which one's right? Both. Do away with the yoke of the old covenant. Take on Jesus' yoke, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the finished work. What's the difference between doing away with the yoke and taking the yoke? The Greek word behind our English word yoke means coupling. Coupling. You know what a coupling is? A coupling is a pairing of two items. That's what a coupling is. It's like where we get the word couple. Pairing of two items, two people. Friends, we are paired with Christ. We are paired with Jesus. We walk with him. We work with him. We watch how he does it. We learn how to water the thirsty through the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm talking about the spring whose waters never fail. My final scripture. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus said these words. He said, come unto me. All ye that labor, all you guys that have been working so hard, all you guys that have a yoke of oppression around your neck, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And he said, and I will give you rest. Look what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Remember that garden I was talking about earlier? He said, when you take this gospel of grace and you yoke it to me, you know what a yoke is? It's for like two animals. And when you're yoked, that means you have to walk step and step. So you get opportunity to hear his heartbeat, to hear him breathing, to hear his words, and to learn from the master. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The inner cry of every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. It's the same. Show us the Father. We were created to know our Father. Sadly, millions of children will go to bed tonight without the presence of their earthly fathers. Tonight, millions of little girls will not hear the words from their daddies. You're treasured and cherished. You're loved and beautiful. Your daddy's little girl. Honey, God has an amazing plan for your life. Tonight, millions of little boys will not hear the words from their daddies. You're loved and you're smart. You're talented and you're very special in my eyes. Son, let's go fishing tomorrow. Son, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Throughout my church upbringing, I was taught to wash the outside of the cup through obedience, oblivious to the truth that Jesus had put a living well on the inside of me, a well that I didn't have to dig and a well that I don't have to maintain, a well that I don't have to prime through performance. 
I'm talking about a well that cannot be contaminated. It's a living well that flows from the belly of Jesus Christ. A well that satisfies with one drink. A well that is not dug, drilled, or driven by the hands of man, but comes as a gift. Hear the words again that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Friends, we have a garden growing on the inside of our spirit. Our garden is organic and it's full of everything that we need in life. This garden never needs fertilization for by one sacrifice, I'll say it again, he has made perfect our garden forever. We also have a garden in our soul and by rotating that which is in the garden of our spirit over into the garden of our soul, we renew our mind with the mind of Christ and in the process we eradicate the habitat the breeding ground, if you will, for the nagging pests of guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. So let me ask you the questions once more. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Are you just emotionally and physically exhausted? Are you fed up with crop failure in the mind? What's it like inside the bubble? Does your head ever give you trouble? It's no sin. Trade it in. Friends, get away with Jesus and take a long, cool drink of living water. It's free of charge and it does not come with conditions. Allow the Father to rotate the organic life from your spirit over into your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Work with Him. Walk with Him. Sit at His feet and watch how He does it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Friends, through the revelation of the new covenant of grace, He fills our well with living water. This living water heals hurtful memories, flushes out toxic thoughts and emotions, shatters the window pane that we stared through for years with emotional guilt, emotional pain, and strips away the old programming that kept Father God at a distance. I'm tired of that. The well of Jesus' love for us is a constant reminder that we are treasured and that we are loved and that we are adored and that we are beautiful and that we are special in His eyes, but most of all, that we are His. Friends, that is the virtue of the inner well. In Jesus' name, amen. Daddy, I want to thank you so much that when we said yes to Jesus, you put a river of living water in our spirit. And whether we feel the turbulence of that rushing water or we don't, that's immaterial. We're not saved based on how we feel. We're saved based upon the finished work of the cross and all your promises of yes and amen. I want to thank you, Father, that you have put this river of living water on the inside of me. And this hope that I have makes me very, very bold. 
bold where I can stand and preach the gospel, whether it's in front of a group or one-on-one -on, -one on the street. But Daddy, help us to retract those bony fingers that we want to put in the face of people because we don't know what paths they've walked down. They may be like the woman at the well. They may have known only religion their entire life, or they may have not known anything about you. So help us to be compassionate. Help us to reach out to them, Daddy, and to let our light shine, to let the gospel of grace move through us, and so that we can take this yoke of oppression off of their necks, off of their hearts, Daddy, and we can place on them the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, that the well is inexhaustible, that the well will never run dry. I thank you, Father, that I have traded away my sorrows. I have traded away my broken cisterns for a drink of this living water that by one drink has satisfied my garden forever. Father, I thank you for the well that you put on the inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.